I don't know if anyone's applied for a job recently. Anyone? Has anyone applied for a job recently? Um, so you apply for a job. What's the first step? What's the first thing you need to do when you apply for a job? What do you have to submit? Resume. Submit a resume. And so uh, it's funny. I was a hiring manager for seven years in New York. Um, and I saw all kinds of resumes, good ones, bad ones, terrible ones. Um, I even received one day a handwritten resume on a uh, spiral, a sheet of paper that was ripped out of a spiral notebook, I kid you not, for a, uh, uh, for a supervisor position, no less. Um, that was amusing. Uh, I, I kept that for a couple years, just, and every time I would stumble across it in my desk, I'd, I'd laugh. Um, just because it's not what, you'd, right, not what you'd expect. I wasn't laughing at the person, I was laughing at the, at the resume. Typically, you want a resume gives you basically a summary. It's a, it's a snapshot, it's a summary of who you are. Right? Someone who's never seen you before, someone who's never heard of you before, someone who doesn't know who you are, has to look at a piece of paper, or for some people, four or five or six papers, and determine that this person would be at least a good fit for me to interview. That's what a resume does. It's a snapshot of who you are. And so today, we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to be looking at a couple of topics. Um, so we're looking at the deity of Jesus. That's, that's the, the, the series we're on for these seven weeks. Um, and I know, uh, I heard Pastor Russell's uh, class last Sunday, and he did a, uh, last Wednesday, and he did a wonderful job as he always does. Um, but today we get into uh, little definite and defined aspects of the deity of Jesus. How do we how do we know that Jesus is God? How did he show that Jesus that that he was in fact the Son of God? What was his resume like? Let's take a look at his resume. Um, <clears throat> Let's look at his resume. And so when we have a resume, typically we have several things on that resume. We have, we have credentials, right? We have credentials if, you, if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, um, you, know, you have your licenses, your degrees. Um, I work in IT, so I have my certifications, right? So, so you, you have certain credentials that identify you as, as equipped, as knowledgeable enough Right? You've been through something and you have the, the particular credentials. You have the prerequisites for you to be applying for your job. So Jesus, we're going to look at Jesus' credentials um, in regards to his deity. What makes him be able to claim that he is truly the son of God? Let me get to references. Those are, those are important. Those typically you get after you get the job. You get hired, right? You get interviewed, you get hired. They say, all right, now we need to check your references. And you give a list of, I don't know, three to five people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're going to see Jesus' references. We're going to check out his resume. And we're going to see some references early on in his ministry that would attest to his deity, that would attest to the fact that he is who he claims to be. Another section on a resume would be the education. Right? That's, that's a big one. Um, and so education is important, right? We need, you need bachelor's for some jobs, master's, you need a doctorate for others, you need certain, certain, certain uh, seminars for other positions. Well, what did Jesus know? What did Jesus know? What did people know about what Jesus knew that gave credence to the, his claim that he was truly the son of God? And then the biggest part of most people's resume is the experience and the skills, right? You put in all the jobs you've done, all the things that you've done. And so we're going we're gonna to see 
And we're going to see if, if Jesus' experiences, the things he did, align up with what the Son of God would do, with what a man who claims to be God would do. And so, <clears throat> so let's first start off with his credentials. Um, and so we find his credentials um, in his genealogies. And so in the New Testament, there are two genealogies that refer or that, 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 that pertain to Jesus, right? Uh, we see in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1, we see a chronological genealogy starting from Abraham, right, all the way down to Jesus. Um, and Abraham, right, was, 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 you needed to have whoever it was that was the Messiah, that was the supposed son of God, needed to be a son of Abraham, needed to be of the direct descendant of Abraham and a direct descendant of David. Um, and so the, the, the genealogy in Matthew gives you the genealogy of Joseph, his, his, his father, quote unquote, right? Because that wasn't really his father, more like his stepdad, <laughs> Right, so it gives you the genealogy of Joseph. And why was that important? Anybody know why the genealogy of, 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 of Joseph was important? Why it was important for, for them to know where he came from on that side? Because, I'll tell you, if I don't get an answer, it, it's, it gives you, he needed to know, we needed to know that he was from the lineage of David. Right? We needed to know that he was in the lineage of David because he is legally, Joseph is a descendant, a legal descendant of King David. And being a legal descendant of King David gives Jesus the legal claim, as little as it was through all those generations, it gives Jesus a legal claim to the throne. It gives Jesus a legal claim to being king of kings, king of Israel. So through Joseph, right, he has a legal right. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm a son of King David. I have a claim to the throne. Now there's a second genealogy. And if you look at Luke, I believe it's Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 28, we see a second genealogy that is slightly different. Anybody know why it's slightly different? It's Mary, right? Even though it starts off with Joseph. But Joseph being the husband, he's given credit for that genealogy. And it comes around, and that genealogy goes all the way to Adam. That genealogy goes all the way to Adam. Right? And, it, and it, it, it goes that far because it points out two things. One, that Jesus is the king not only of the Jews under Abraham, but Jesus is the king of all men. Jesus is the rightful king of kings of all humanity, of all creation. It goes all the way to Adam. And secondly, it's important because not only does Jesus have the legal claim through Joseph, he also has the natural claim through Mary. He was not born of Joseph. He didn't have any natural connection to the throne through Joseph, just the legal one. But through Mary, he had a natural connection. So he was both legally and naturally. He was both by right and by blood. He had a legal claim. He had a rightful claim to the throne. So his credentials, his credentials check out, right? Well, that's the importance of his, his, his genealogies here. Now, let's check his references. So, references basically are witnesses who give testimony, right? And we look at those witnesses, right? And, and so when you give, you give a reference, basically you're saying, I know this person. I know that he does this. I know that he knows that. I know that she's able to do what she says she's able to do. They're witnesses. 
And when we look at, um, when we look at the testimonies, and we're going to look at early testimonies, because today we're going to be studying out of Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2. So we're looking at all the witnesses and all the testimony that occurs before Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2, um, before the passages we're looking at. And so let's look at all of these witnesses. So in Luke chapter 2, there are angels that come and testify to the birth of the newborn king. Luke 2.21, his parents named him Jesus. Yahweh saves as a testimony to who he is. Simeon in the temple in Luke chapter 2. Anna in the temple in Luke chapter 2. They prophesy over him and testify to his identity as the, as the, as the chosen one, as the Messiah. Right? The wise men in Matthew 2, the first 11 verses, testify that he is the promised one because of the star that they saw. Right. Twelve years later in the temple, Jesus is left by his parents. Right. And when they come back and get him. Right. The, 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 the teachers in the temple are in awe of his knowledge, of the questions and his responses. We see that in um, Luke 2, 49. They were in awe. And he, and he himself testifies. He says, he says, did you know that I would not be in my father's house? He testifies to the fact that he is the son of God. In John chapter one, we find John the Baptist giving testimony to his disciples. Then we hear Andrew and John testify to Peter in John 1, 41, we have found the Messiah. Later on in that chapter, Philip to Nathaniel says the same thing. He says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Nathaniel then later testifies the same through his own lips. Jesus Again, later in that chapter, testifies, he says, he is the son of man, using that term from the book of Daniel to refer to himself as the Messiah, right? Satan, when he tempts Jesus in Luke chapter 4, he says, if you are, right, cynically, if you are the son of God, he knew who he was talking to. He gives testimony that Jesus is the son of God. Later on, right, in his baptism, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, as Jesus walks out of the River Jordan after being baptized, what do we see? The, the skies open up, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father announces from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then after that, in John chapter 4, when Jesus at the well with the, with the Samaritan woman, we find the Samaritans give testimony between verses 29 and 42 of John 4. The Samaritan woman asks, can this be the Christ? And later on, when she gives testimony in verse 42, the villagers respond to her, it is no longer because of you, because of what you said that we believe, if not for what we heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Those are some awesome references. So now let's check out his education. We look at his education, I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple, right? The Jewish leaders at the temple in Luke 2, they were, again, awed by his answers and his responses. Again, I, I'm referencing John 1 with Andrew, John, and Nathaniel calling him rabbi. And later in John 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, one of the best, comes around and says, Lord, we know that you are a teacher and that you have come from God. So we know his education is, is there. So what's next? His experience and his skills. Well, what did he do? Well, I mean, he only defeated Satan in the desert during the temptation. In John 2, he turns water into wine. He then cleanses the temple. 
And then we see him in John chapter 4, healing the son of an official. All this before Mark chapter 1 in the verse we're going to read. All this he does. But yet for the Jews, his experience still seems kind of light. They still, he still hasn't done enough to convince them that he is truly the son of God. So three questions remain. Three questions remain. And today our mission is to answer the first two can Jesus defeat Satan for others? And two, can Jesus defeat sin and disease? The third question, can Jesus defeat death? That's a topic for another day, though we already know the answer to that. So let's jump into our passage. Um, and let's open up to uh, Mark chapter 1. Those of you with our Bibles, we're going to be reading from verse 21 through verse 28. Mark chapter 1. And we're going to start reading the first few verses, 21 through 24. And so this is this section we're going to call it Christ's authority over Satan and demons. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as a scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We'll stop there. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So when we look at this passage, when we look at the, the, the narrative, we see that Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching with authority. We look at verse 22. We understand that Jesus is teaching with authority. Um, and he's teaching like unlike anything they've ever heard before. Now, I don't know. I know I, I, I went, went to four schools in, 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 in my life. And I remember my favorite teacher. Her name, well, I had two. Um, it was my, my English teacher, middle school English teacher. They were both in middle school. My middle school English teacher, her name was Linda Piltz. And uh, she, was, she, was, she was special. She was a special teacher. She, she challenged me in, in, in ways to think abstractly, to think um, to think outside the box from a literary and from a philosophical perspective. And my math teacher, Terry George, that was fun. We used to, I was, I was, I was in, a, in, a, in, a, in a private school and it was in a gifted class. And so there was a, we were a bunch of nerds in that math class and, and we would all compete with, with, uh, with, with, with Mr. George. And Mr. George, and I was the most competitive one out of all of them. And so, man, I would challenge him on every test or whatever. And we would sit down and he would, he would prepare. He would get other math teachers to bring in like work. And I would, we would compete. We would compete to see who would be done first. I never beat him. I never beat him. I mean, I didn't know he had his, he was a, he was a doctor in mathematics. I'd never be, I was never going to beat him. And I didn't know he would get, he would go slow and wait till I was on my last one to say he was finished. I didn't know that. Um, but it was, and, and you know, the, and the consequences for losing were some weird, like one day he would tie my, he would staple my tie to the bulletin board. And I remember the principal walked in and sees me up front with the, my tie stapled to the bulletin board. He goes, I don't even want to know. And he turns around and walks right out. But he challenged me in a very different way. I remember those. You remember teachers who, who hit the mark and who, who leave you different. And that was, that was Mr. George. And for them, Jesus did it in a, in a, in a supernatural way. They, they heard Jesus, and they saw his authority, and they said, man, this guy teaches, well, and he has this authority that the scribes and the Pharisees, 
don't have. Huh. Jesus taught with authority. Right? And, and his authority was unlike anything he had, they had seen or heard before. And then the topic of his teaching, it was an honest, so brief, brief parentheses here. Don't let anyone ever fool you into thinking that Jesus' message was just fluffy and nice, right? Sugar and spice and all things nice. That wasn't Jesus' message. Folks have become millionaires selling books and preaching on TV telling you just grace and just, you know, Jesus is a friend and Jesus is, is cool and he, you know, he gets you. Would you like to know what Jesus' message was from the beginning? When anybody ever quotes anything to you, please bring them back. To, write this down, Matthew 4, 17. Matthew 4, 17. It says, from that time, from his baptism, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the foundation of Jesus' message through his entire ministry. All the other stuff was built on top of that. Amen. So if anyone ever points you to a Jesus that, that didn't call for repentance, that, didn't, that doesn't care about your sin, that's cool with whatever you are, whoever you are, whenever you are, whatever you are, from now and forever, bring them back to Matthew 4. Because Jesus will come to us. Jesus will find us where we are. He will address our need, but he will not leave us the same. Because his message is repent. His message is repentance. Amen? Okay. And if you disagree, we can, we can have a chat later because we need to have a chat. So come see me if, 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 if we're not on the same page. And so, right, so that's his message. His repentance and his knowledge of truth was profound. His knowledge of truth was profound. Now, if you ever hear me talking about fishing or hunting, you will know immediately that my knowledge is not even surface level. I, I know nothing about Fishing. I know. I know you. I know you. You, you cast the thing. And you catch it. Now you give it to me. I'll, I'll open it up. I'll, I'll, I'll clean it up and I'll cook it. That 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 I can talk to you about. You know, talk to me about food and spices and 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 and, and gastronomy. That we can have an expert level conversation on. I have my honorary doctorate from several uh, several culinary schools. It's a joke, of course, but but we but I can speak to you at that level. I can tell you what temperatures do to proteins, and I can tell you what, 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 what you do if you change five degrees or 10 and cooking on different services and materials. I can talk to you about that in depth. You, and you know the difference. You hear it. When someone knows what they're talking about, you can hear it. You can hear the passion in it. You can hear the depths of knowledge. They don't, they don't have to, they just, they just speak freely and liberally and, 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 and that truth flows out. And you say, wow, I have spoken to someone who knows what they're talking about. This is Jesus. Who better to know the law? Who better to know his word than the author of it? His knowledge of truth was profound and his conviction was so powerful that it made demons afraid. Now, we're going to talk about his encounter with demons here, and they show their fear of Jesus here. And so let's, let's, get, let's take an overview quickly. Um, this is a quick overview of demonology. That's the, that's the subject, demonology. If you're, if you're, if you're in seminary or in Bible school, that's, that's, that's what the topic is called. This is a quick overview. Number one, who or what are they? Are they fallen angels? Most folks believe they are. Some folks also believed believe that they are the, I'm going to read this, the disembodied spirits 
of dead Nephilim giants who perished at the time of the great flood. You would not believe the amount of commentaries that I saw that believe that. The third is the one I side with. I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't tell me who they are specifically. What I do know is they are some nasty spiritual individuals who are in cahoots with Satan and are enemies of God and are enemies of his church. And that I do know 100%. So whatever you agree on, whatever you think the demons come from, again, that's a great discussion, a great topic of conversation over dinner one day maybe, but not tonight. We, have, we truly don't know exactly where they come from because the Bible does not specify. All right, so let's look at the demons' works. What do they do? And so we've broken it down into three points. Uh, the first is possession, right? And so possession is to be under the control of a demon that ultimately cannot be resisted, right? Dominated, controlled, and tormented, right? They have free access. They come and they go, um, right? They were able to, in Matthew 8, 29, we see that they controlled speech of someone that they possessed. Matthew 12, 22, we see that they caused disease, Right? The Bible said, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. Right? Mark 5.3, when we see the demon-possessed man, the, the, the one who had the legion in him, the gathering, he, right? he lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore. Mark chapter 5, verse 3, not even with chains. They promoted nakedness. Don't think today's culture isn't, a demonic, isn't under demonic influence. Promoted nakedness, Mark chapter 5, 15, shows us that the people were astonished when they saw this gathering man dressed. He had been running around without his clothes. He was at his worst. That's what the enemy does. He promotes nakedness. He, he, he goes contrary to what God does. Right? What did God do in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned? What did he do? He dressed them. He clothed them. He clothed them. And today's culture embraces the demonic influence and exposes themselves and says this, I am, I am in defiance of what God did in the garden. I am in defiance of what God has demanded of humanity, the decency and the coverage that he requires. That's, I mean, that's, that's what he does. That's what Satan does. That's what the demons do. They, they go contrary to the will and the work of God. The good thing is a true Christian cannot be demon-possessed. 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 16. What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. What does Colossians 1.13 say? It says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He takes us out of whatever we were in, and he brings us out. 1 John 2.13 says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. And finally, 1 John 4.4, 4, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. If God is with us, who can be against us? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. A believer, a true believer, a Christian washed with the blood of Jesus cannot be demon-possessed. Now, influence, home of the story. Because that's what they do. They influence. They lead us to do certain things. 
And then we do them voluntarily, right? First Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. They will influence things. They will show you things and try to lead you astray, try to lead you to the wrong decisions. Try to pick on something in your flesh that's weak so that you can act on it. Let's go to the next one, oppression. The constant, consistent attacks from demonic forces that are resistible. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Yes, he can oppress. Yes, he can influence. Yes, he can pester. They can do these things, but they cannot take hold and they cannot dominate and they cannot take control over us because the one that is in us has sealed us until he comes again. Can I get an amen? amen. And lastly, they have belief in God. <laughs> they have belief in God. Now, it's not faith. Because it's not anything they haven't seen. They've seen God. And they know God and they believe. So they believe in God, right? James 2.9 right, tells us that even the, de the demons believe and they shudder, right? And we see that they believe because the word of God here caused a reaction, right, in the demon. It caused a reaction in both, right? It caused a reaction in the people and it caused a reaction in the demon. The people reacted how? How did the people react when they heard Jesus teach? They were astonished. They were astonished. Part, partially because of the power and authority of his word. Another reason is why they were astonished was because they really didn't know who was in front of them. <laughs> they didn't understand the gravity of the situation. They did not understand that the divine, the second person of the Godhead was standing before them. They did not understand that it was Emmanuel, God with us, speaking to them. If they truly understood that, they would have reacted more like, oh, Isaiah. Or like, mm, Samson's father. What was his name? Forgot his name. Anyway, it's not important. All right. They fell to their feet. Isaiah said, I am finished. I am done. These people were like astonished. Whoa, this is some awesome teaching. This is profound. There's something special about this guy. But they didn't understand. You know who did understand who was before them? The demons. They understood very clearly who was standing before them. Right? Why? They, they reacted with fear. They said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Today's language. Why are you picking? Why are you bullying me? Why are you picking on me? Have you come to judge us? They understood that the one who stood before them was the king of kings and the lord of lords and the ultimate judge. They knew. And if you don't think so, study the book of Revelations. Book of Revelations tells you in the first verse that this, what, what Revelations is about. It's not about all the isms. It's about the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it tells you in the first verse. And it gives you 47 titles, 47 names, and one of those is judge. They understood that the judge was before them and they were afraid that it was their time. They were afraid. And so they know who he is and they know his power. So 
Sorry. So let's look at his encounter. Sorry. His encounter with demons. Let's look at his encounter with the demons. And right, so Jesus, right here, he has proven. Right? They got fearful. He cast them out. Right? They left the body of this man. And so he has proven here that he can defeat Satan on behalf of others. That was one of the questions, right? He had defeated Satan, he had healed some people, but could he defeat Satan on behalf of others? As the Messiah was prophesied to do, the answer is absolutely. He defeated Satan and the demons on behalf of others. So we have that question. Now we look at his domination over the demons here in the next section, verses 25 through 28. Mark 1, verses 25 through 28 says, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That last part is important. He started to get famous. So we see that he dominates over the demons. And we see four different, four different fears here. And I don't have the time to get into this because I was assigned really two lessons to cover in one night. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would like to break this down. I'd like to spend the rest of the evening here, but I can't. Um, the demons, they feared four things. And we see in this passage. First, we see they feared the preaching of the Son of God. And we see that in how they were the reaction. They fear the preaching of the truth. There is nothing worse for any of the demonic influence, whether outside the church or within church buildings, than a preaching of the truth. There is nothing more powerful against evil, against sin, against the chains of the enemy, than the preaching of the truth of God's word. Amen. Just by simply preaching, the demons reacted. <clears throat> Secondly, right, they, the demons feel the purpose of the Son of God. They fear the purpose of the Son of God. You see that, right? Why? Because what's, what's his purpose? Several. One, he destroys the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. The devil hates, demons hate Jesus' purpose. Right? Jesus will ultimately send the demons to hell. Right? They said it. Have you come to destroy us? We see that again in Luke chapter, we see that response in Luke chapter 4. Have you come to destroy us? Remember when he, when he, when he cast the demons, when he cast the legion out of the pigs? He says the same thing. Have you come to destroy us? It is not time. <laughs> they know. They fear the judgment. Right? We see the legion plead with Jesus. Begs him not to send them to the abyss. In Luke chapter 8, verse 30 to 31, they know. They fear the preaching. They fear the purpose. Thirdly, they fear the person of the Son of God. Luke 4, 34, they said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know who you are. Right? It was at the seven brothers in the book of Acts. Right? Seven brothers, they go out preaching, and, 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 and the seven sons of... Um, See, but thank you. 
right? They're out preaching and, and, and trying to cast out demons. And they encounter a couple of demon-possessed guys, and they get beat down really badly. They're like, well, we know Paul. We know Paulo. You. Ah, we don't know who you are. We don't know who you are. They fear. They know who, who, who God is. They know who the ones who are in Christ are. They know who the ones who God has protected. They know those. God, right, in the book of Job, hey, have you looked at my servant Job? Yeah, we, we, we know. I know. But you have him protected. Let him loose a little, see what happens, right? They know. The devil is acutely aware of those that God, of those that God protects. Demons fear the power they fear us because of the unity in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. They fear us because of the unity we have in Christ. They fear the person. They also fear the power of the Son of God. No one had seen that authority before. In Matthew 9:33, the Bible says, when the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. They're afraid of the power of the Son of God because he commands over demons in his miraculous power. We see it over and over and over in the New Testament. I don't have time to read all the examples, but we see it through Scripture, through the Gospels, over a dozen times. They're afraid of the power of the Son of God. Well, let's jump now to the next passage, which is Mark chapter 2. And we're going to look at Christ's authority over sin and disease. I missed a word there in the slide. Christ's authority over sin and disease. And we're going to, we have two major points there. The first is lessons from a paralyzed man from, from that narrative. And the second point, only God for, forgives sins. So let's, let's tackle the first point, lessons from the paralyzed man. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'll read the verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you recall, if you recall, Jesus started to get famous now by what he was doing. Right? His fame, we read that in the last section that his fame spread all across the land. Keep that in mind. I just I want to remind you of that. When we look at here, this passage here is about, really isn't healing only. And it really only isn't only about healing of the body. It is a healing. And it is a healing of the body. But it's not only a healing of the body. You know that passage in Isaiah, by his stripes, we were healed. If you look at the context, what Isaiah writes about Jesus, he's not really talking about sickness of the body, is he? Now, I'm in a precarious situation here. 
I was joking with Pastor Mark earlier today. I'm an ex-Pentecostal. I was an ex-charismatic. And like, on that, that, on that end, right? And um, I used to interpret this very differently. This was for me, right? This was for me, for charismatic. This was for, at that point in time, a passage about physical healing. I would quote Isaiah, and it was about physical healing. And I missed the point. Yes, our bodies will be healed. God does promise us healing in the end. And we'll get to that in a minute. But this passage is something more than just the healing of a leg or of a liver or of a kidney. And those things are important. I'm not diminishing that. There are folks in this room who we struggle with things that we'd like to not struggle with anymore. I, I'm not diminishing that. Please. And while I don't believe exactly the same, I still believe and I pray to a God who heals and is able to hear our bodies in the here and now. I believe in a powerful supernatural God who still does supernatural healings. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what the passage is about at the end of the day, and we'll see that. So we see that Jesus forgives sins. That's what it's about. It's about healing the soul. It's about a perpetual, eternal, spiritual healing, profound, deeper than the bones and marrows, deeper than blood cells and deeper than organs. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's how great God's forgiveness is. What does God say about himself in the context of forgiveness? Well, let's look at his law. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. It says, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, Moses. <clears throat> Proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In other words, well, he said this after the people of Israel had worshiped the golden calf. God was angry with his people. God had recognized the sin of his people, but he starts off his pronunciation of judgment with a statement of his character. Right? The Lord, I, the, the Almighty, the, the, the greatest name, the name above all name, the Lord. He, 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 he proclaims his name and he says, I am compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abiding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. That's who I am. Your sin runs out to two and three generations. My forgiveness and grace runs out a thousand. Whew. You couldn't outpace God's grace if you tried. And boy, have we, haven't we? Praise the living God. God said this before Moses was, write, was to write the law. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he's merciful and that his grace is incredible. And this is how we look at Jesus. And this is how we look at the words that he pronounces here in this passage of forgiveness. So now let's look at the narrative that we just read. 
We see four men brought paralyzed men to Jesus through a roof. Again, I don't have the time to get into the details of that, but they're basically these tiles, that these thatches that they would pull off the roofs, and, and they got to this man's house, and they dropped this man in. I don't know if they dropped him in, but they let him down. Absolutely dedicated friends. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about the friend? They loved, they loved him, and they knew who was in that house. <laughs> right? They knew who was in the house. I'm not doing all that. <laughs> they knew who was in that house. For you to do that, I'm going to break down somebody's roof so that a friend of mine could get healed, go through all that work. I know that that man is going to be healed. That is some faith. They knew this, why? Because we had just said he had become famous. When we look at the, the part that we skipped here in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 38, Jesus had been healing and casting out demons throughout all of Galilee. And so now Jesus is coming, and now he's super famous now. I mean, he was getting famous before. Now he, the, the entire, I mean, he, you know, um, Pastor John MacArthur says he, he, he eradicated sin, uh, disease and illness pretty much in Galilee. And so he show, they show up at this house. They do this. He'd been casting out doom. And, and, and when he comes right to this house and he's teaching, there was, the Bible tells us in Luke, because it's the same parallel. We look at Luke chapter 5, and we see the same story. In, the, in, in Luke's version, it says, Pharisees, verse 17, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So Luke tells us, the part of the story that Mark does, doesn't, right? Mark tells he was famous, but Luke says he was so famous that a bunch of teachers and scribes came because they wanted to check Jesus out for themselves. The Gospels are a beautiful story when you read them together. And so we see the power of the Lord was with him. Luke tells us that piece too. And Jesus saw their faith, and they found a way to get to their friend, they get their friend to Jesus, they took the tiles off the roof, and Jesus rewards their faith. He rewards their faith. In God or in theology? I don't know what those guys knew. I don't know if they knew the law well. We don't know if they even went to temple every Saturday. We don't know what kind of their character there was what kind of people they were. The Bible doesn't give us those details. It just says four friends who believed that that guy in the house could heal the guy that they were lowering to him. They had faith in God. And then Jesus makes a divine declaration, calls him his son. Matthew 9 is another side of the story. He tells him to have courage, and then he declares his sins are forgiven. He declares his sins are forgiven. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. Come to me with faith. Right? He draws us. He calls us through his word, through his message. And we respond. Say, Lord, I, I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're telling me. And I believe it. I hear what you're telling me, and man, I, it's, I have no doubt. And we hear his message of repentance and of salvation, and we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the only way out. And when we believe that, 
We become his friends. We become children of God. We become his own. That's the message of the gospel. He declared that men and his sins forgiven. Which brings us to the next section. Only God forgives sin. Verses 6 through 12. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, remember the audience. Remember the audience. It was scribes and Pharisees. Now, there was levels to who knew what. And we hear a lot about the Pharisees, but the, 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 some translations call the scribes the lawyers. These are the, the experts in the law. These are the experts in the law. Right? These are the lawyers, like a Paul would have been categorized as, as one of these lawyers. You had your regular run-of-the-mill Pharisees, and then you had the scribes. They called the big guns in to see. And the big guns didn't like it. Because he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And their accusation, right? It's, it's, he's blasphemed. That's the accusation. Blasphemy. And let me tell you something. Their theology was right. <laughs> Their theology was right. Is it not blasphemy to call oneself God or the Son of God in that, in that context? Is it not blasphemy? Pastor Carey, I forgive your sins. Blasphemy. Blas absolutely blasphemous. I forgive your sins. Go. You're forgiven. Blasphemy. Go say, anyway, let me not go there. I'm, I'm be nice. You get the picture. Their theology was 100% correct. There are times when your theology can be right and we can still be wrong. We're not called... We're not called simply to be theologues. Last week, Pastor Russell said theology sometimes is a dirty word for us or something to that effect. And it can be. And sometimes it is. Sometimes we hide behind. You know, I love the way he talked about primary and secondary and tertiary things. Tertiary matters. Sometimes we take our theology so seriously that we forget we miss the forest or the trees. I used to drive, in my early 20s, I used to drive the church van. Yeah, we had one of those. And we used to pick up, you know, some of the elderly women, the, 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 the ladies with children, and we used to pick them up. And I remember one time we, we got to pick up the last family, and it was getting close to service time. But there was a man, in he was having a medical emergency. He was in need. And I jumped out the van, and we, we, we tried to help him, and we shared the gospel with him. I don't know what happened to him. I do know what happened to him. He, worked in the, he went to the hospital that I worked in. He did pass that evening. But I had a chance to speak with the man and to share the gospel with the man. And he understood and he acknowledged that he was a sinner and he acknowledged Christ as his savior. Was it genuine? I don't know. I'm not the judge of that. I just did my job. When I got to church, we got to church 20 minutes late. 
I was also the, I was also the, the guy who played guitar. And my my spiritual leader, my pastor, was furious that we were late. And I wrote him a little note. I sent it to him, so I could see he was annoyed that we were late. And I wrote him a note explaining to him what happened. I saw him read the note, and after the service, he told me, "Our service begins at 6 p.m." That was his response. My question to you is, is God not a God of order? Yes, he is. But like the Pharisees, he also calls us to go and find the lost sheep on the Sabbath if necessary. The Pharisees had their theology right. The statement that Jesus made would have been a blasphemous statement had anyone else made it. They were they accused him of blasphemy. Then immediately Jesus, verse 8, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? So the accusation, right, was that it was blasphemy. How can you speak evil of the law of God? How can you speak evil of God himself? How can you act like if you are God? The issue wasn't that their theology was wrong. The issue was that they did not know God. That's the issue. Theology is great. Learning the Bible from A to Z is great. Memorizing it is great. But knowing God is better and is more. That's your true, true theology. The wisdom, word, and knowledge of God. Knowing who he is. Knowing who he is. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew that they were thinking only God could know those things. Only God could do that. Right? 1 Samuel 16, 7. He looks at the heart of men. 1 Kings 8, 39. He knows the hearts of men. 1 Chronicles 28, 9. The Lord searches the hearts of men. Jeremiah 17 repeats the same. Ezekiel 11, verse 5. He knows what comes to the mind. But guess what? Jesus could do it too. John 2.25, no one needed to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's about Jesus. Amen? John 6.61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. Matthew 12.14-15 tells us that Jesus was aware that the Pharisees were conspiring against him. And here he knew what they were thinking. And so he turns around and asks them the question. And he answers them. And they must have been like, oh, because they didn't say anything, they thought. And he asked them a question. Which is easier? To heal paralysis or to forgive sin? Ha! I love it. Which is easier? <laughs> Which is easier? Which is easier for you? Neither. I can no more forgive a man's sins as I can raise a man who is paralyzed. I can no more forgive a man's sins than I can cure someone of a cold. Yeah, I give you medicine for a few days, some tea, honey, ginger, all that good stuff, lemon, 
and you know, in a few days you'll be fine. I didn't cure you. God, through the natural processes of your body, cured you. That wasn't me. What's easier? <laughs> Did they answer him? No, no. I'm sure he probably paused. I'm sure he, I'm sure he waited. I'm sure he looked at each one of those Pharisees and scribes in the eye. That's, at least that's how I envision it. Waited for an answer. And I can imagine the heads dropping. He's done that a few times. John 8, right, with the sinful woman, with the woman they catch in adultery. Looks around, he says, what's easier? Tell me what's easier. Both were impossible. And both are part of the plan of the redemption. Because guess what? God will heal us. Either in this life or the next. Romans 8.23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There will be a day where what hurts won't hurt. There will be a day that what doesn't function right will function perfectly as God has created it. Whether by his miraculous touch, whether by the wisdom through the science that he has given us, or in eternity when he calls us home. So Jesus got up and healed this young man, or this man, as evidence of his ability to do the impossible. Healed him as evidence of his ability to do the impossible. The passage tells us that it brought amazement to the people and glory to God. They glorified God, the Bible says. And once again, Jesus proved that he is God. He has proven authority over the devil. He proved authority over demons. He proved authority over sickness. And he proved authority over sin. The question I leave us with tonight is are we amazed? Are we amazed? And I ask that question because many times I read the Gospels and I'm not. Many times I read through the stories about Jesus doing amazing things. Yeah, I read it. Merle, I know the story already. I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of that many, many, many times. And so my prayer, not only for you, but for me, for us tonight, is that as we dive deeper into his word and as we see the things he has done every single time, every single time we read about the things he has done in his word, through birth, all the way to resurrection and ascension, when we see the works of his hands in the Old Testament, as we study on Sundays with, the, with Pastor, uh, Pastor, Howard, uh, Pastor Russell and the rest of the preachers, as we see his works in Genesis through the first 11 chapters, as we see the rest of the Bible unfold in all of our studies and all of our devotionals, may we come to his word. May we say, God, thank you, glorify him, and be amazed at what he has done and what he continues to do. Mm -hmm.